Well, we're finally here. We're to the last portion of this heavenly throne room scene. And I'll confess to you that for the past two weeks, I've been looking ahead to this passage, just ready, raring to go with this one. This climactic scene is just incredibly exciting. Really, since Tuesday morning, I've just been chomping at the bit to be here. I was in no way ready at that point, but I knew what would be in store for us. So if you would, join me in prayer as we look to the Lord. Father, we love you, and we are so thankful for your word. Lord, we, we want this time to be profitable, and we realize that apart from you, it, it cannot be so. So we ask that your presence would be here, that you would bless us with your spirit, that even as Paul begs the Thessalonians to pray, that your word would have free reign, that it would run, and Lord, that we would glorify you by our responses. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. My first week working construction was almost my very last week. My boss was building a house for a micromanager, and he'd come out my first day on the job to measure some trenches that we laid for some irrigation line. And if you know anything about that, I'm not sure if it's this the case here, but in South Carolina, they're supposed to be 24 inches deep. And ours were 22 and a half inches deep, and he very quickly picked up on that. And he made a huge deal about it. And so we said that we would deepen them. They were too shallow and we would make them deeper. And unfortunately, since I was the new guy, I drew the short straw and that was my task. And it wouldn't have been a huge deal if it was just a normal driveway. But this man lived in the middle of nowhere and his driveway was half a kilometer long. And the lines went all the way from the road down to his house. And this isn't rich, fertile soil that I'm digging in. It's Carolina clay. It's harder than concrete. And so for the whole first week of my job, I learned this terrible and wicked and awful lesson that it is impossible nearly to deepen something that is too shallow. Well, in this throne room scene that we've been studying, we've been looking at the majesty of our God. And then last week, we saw how sovereign he was over everything. And in these last few verses, Revelation 5, 8 to 13, sorry, through 14, we're going to see that we have this tendency. We fall into patterns of worship that are weak and are shallow. So the big idea that John has for us this evening is because of the worth, the supreme worth of Christ demands that you deepen your worship. And really, John lays it out for us in three simple scenes. He looks at the worship of the elders and these uh, four creatures, and then he broadens his scope just a little bit to include the angels, and then he broadens it once more to include the rest of creation. So let's begin here in verses 8 to 10, where we find this. The elders and the four creatures, they exalt Christ's worth with their whole being, So you must deepen your worship. Let me read that portion of text just briefly. Revelation 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the book, that's Christ, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Jesus Christ, this only 
being in the universe who is worthy to open the scroll, to unleash God's plan for the future. He takes it from the Father. And the immediate response is this jubilant worship. And if you think back to last week, these heavenly beings are rejoicing in the all-encompassing sovereignty of God, that His plan is finally coming to pass. And you see in the first part of verse 8 that they fall down before the Lamb. As soon as Christ takes the scroll, these heavenly beings, they respond by throwing themselves to the ground in worship. And six other times in Revelation, we see this same type of response, either through heavenly beings or through humans, falling down before God in worship. It is the most and only appropriate reaction when you encounter the majesty of God. And what a majestic moment this must have been for John to see the Lamb taking the scroll, this one who conquered death and overcame every obstacle to begin to implement God's plan for the future. The weight and majesty of Christ's swift and final action evoked overflowing praise. And so these heavenly beings fall down before the Lamb. And in the second half of this verse, Verse 8b, they present prayers and music to the Lamb. And here we see this almost awkward scene of, of the elders holding a harp and a bowl at the same time. And it's hard for us to wrap our brains around how they play something while holding a, a jar in their arms. But there are even paintings of this, of, of Greek gods doing the same thing, holding a harp and also this bowl. And these harps in the Jewish mind are one of the preeminent ways to worship with music. Very common for these psalms to be accompanied by music from the harp. And these golden vials were another accessory of temple worship. And these vials are, are wide-necked saucers, really, made of, of gold for the purpose of worship. And they were often filled with incense. And these dishes would be right alongside the bread of the presence. And they would be poured out as this sweet-smelling worship to God. And John tells us in this passage that what is in the bowls are the prayers of the saints. And these prayers here are the prayers of the martyrs, most likely, that we see in chapter 6. They're prayers for Christ to return, to serve swift and final justice on those who have murdered them. Christ has stored up these prayers. He values them, and they are sweet to him. And you can take great heart in this. God hears your prayers. He captures every unspoken prayer and the tears you shed. Your powerful, heartbroken concerns do not go unnoticed. Those cares that are immensely burdensome to you are not burdensome to God. He hears them. He savors them. Don't grow weary of bringing these weighty cares before him. When his answer to you is wait. Don't give up hope, despairing that he does not listen, that he does not care. No, he cherishes these prayers. He stores them up with great attention. He listens to these prayers, and they are sweet to him. And now after seeing what these heavenly beings do in worship, it's almost as if John zooms right in. He's not only seeing them now, but he is hearing them as well. And in verses 9 and 10, we find that they sing a new song to the Lamb. These same 28 beings, the elders and the four living creatures, they sing a new song. 
And this concept of a new song isn't talking about time. This concept isn't regarding time. It's about quality. And it shows up six times in the Psalms. We read one of them just a few moments ago. There's another in Psalm 40, verse 3. And he hath put a new song in my mouth. Even praise unto our God. Many shall see and fear and shall trust in the Lord. These beings see the workings of Christ and they ever have new reasons to praise Him. Christ is worthy to open the book and they give two primary reasons for Christ's supreme worth. Look in verse 9. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Why? For thou wast slain. And hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. They praise Christ for his act of redemption. To accomplish redemption, Christ had to be slain. And there is this graphic picture that we began to look at last week. John turns and he sees this lamb expecting a roaring lion of the tribe of Judah who conquered. And he turns and he sees this lamb. That was slain. But in the praise of this song, we see this death was not in vain. No, this death was for our redemption. And later in Revelation, there's going to be a beast that rises with this fatal wound as this cheap knockoff, trying to say that he has power over death. But Christ truly conquered death to redeem you. And you would think that the heavenly host would identify Humanity as the great benefactor in this redemption. But that's not what the song does. It actually identifies God himself as the chief benefactor. You, has, you have redeemed us to God or for God. It almost makes you want to swell up with pride for a second. Well, God got me. He's a benefactor here. But no, in 2 Corinthians 5, this is what we see. Paul says, Christ died for all. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. God himself is the benefactor. It is for his glory. You can ask the question, why did God create us? And you go, there's no other reason than for his glory. Why did Christ redeem us? There's no other reason than for his glory. He is the benefactor. And yes, certainly he is the benefactor. But these heavenly beings identify other people who are benefactors, and that's you and I. They come from every place imaginable. This is what one commentator said. There are representatives from every nationality without distinction of race or geographical location. Every lineage Language, race, and political orientation, they are the broad company of the beneficiaries of Christ's redemption. Christ redeemed us, and the angels sang a new song because of it. But they also praise God for the results of redemption. We find this in verse 10. Yes, Christ redeemed us from sin, but this redemption has further-reaching consequences. This redemption is from all hostile powers and from the powers of the beast. And this redemption results in a new people that God will use to rule on earth. Verse 10 says, Thou hast made us unto God kings and priests, and we will reign on 
the earth. These people will not merely be part of God's kingdom. They will reign with him. And further, they are also priests. Those whom God has redeemed have full, complete access to God's presence. They are a royal priesthood serving Christ in witness and in worship. And that is the content of the elders and the creature's new song. The heavenly beings identify how God worked in the past through redemption and how he continues his work through his people. And they built this praise around his activity. I have a pretty standard response whenever I go someplace and I play my euphonium. Most people have never seen anything that looks remotely like it and they think it looks really funny and ridiculous and I would agree. And so often they make comments about it. After I play, I'll get all sorts of different comments. And I almost always respond this way. Well, I'm pretty good at tooting my own horn. And it's always good for a chuckle the first time. And then you say it the second time, maybe the next time you play and you get a little sympathy laugh. Now, I wonder what would happen if I kept using it the third time and the fourth time and the fifth time. Pretty soon you'd get the same result as a dad joke, right? After you hear something for the fifth time, your, result, your, sorry, your response is not delight, it's actually disgust. And this passage here makes us contemplate the value of fresh or new worship. The elders and creatures, they sing a new song. They recognize that as God continues to work throughout creation, they will continually have new reasons to praise Him. So I ask the question, how often do you evaluate your worship to make sure that it is fresh, that it is genuine? Or could you, as you sit down for lunch or dinner, could your children recite the way that you're going to pray over your meal? Can you sing a new song to the Lord, or is your worship repetitive and shallow? Because this passage calls us to refresh your worship. This means when you find yourself falling into a pattern of mundane worship, you look to praise God for the new, the wonderful ways that he is working around you. This looks like pausing your current devotional series. This is what I've been doing this summer. Pausing where I am and taking a deep dive into smaller chunks to see just how God is using his word in my life. Pull out an, all, an old album of worship music or maybe a brand new one you've never listened to to help you guide your meditation to new things, to open your eyes to what God is doing around you. Spend an evening in prayer only giving thanks, not praying for yourself, not praying for others, only looking at what God is doing around you. Deepen your worship by refreshing your worship with a new song. So that's how the elders and these four living creatures worship. They throw their whole existence into this worship, magnifying the worth of Christ with a new song. And then these next verses, John turns to see the response of not just these elders and these beasts, but he sees the whole host of angels. Verses 11 and 12, we find part two, that angels exalt Christ's worth with thunderous praise. So you must deepen your worship. Christ is worthy. The angels recognize this and respond with a deafening song. Look in verse 11. This is what it says. And I beheld, 
And I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. And thousands of thousands. It's almost as if here, at the very end of this heavenly worship scene, John's eyes are beginning to adjust. He sees the full grandeur of this scene before him. And as he looks around, he starts to see things he hadn't noticed yet. And so this is what he sees. He sees innumerable angels declaring Christ's worth. This this worship choir is growing right before his eyes. 10,000 times 10,000. Thousands of thousands on top of that. 100 million strong. All coming together to declare the worth of Christ. So innumerable angels declare Christ's worth. But get this, innumerable angels loudly declare Christ's worth. As these angels begin to sing, John hears this eruption of worship come from the heavenly host. These angels are not singing a soft and peaceful lullaby to the Christ King. No, they are singing loudly of this conquering King of the universe. They are going at full volume. We even heard of this in in the last song. Angels, their thunderous anthem bring. No angels stand there with crossed arms saying, well, I don't like this song. I don't like this tune. I don't like this author. No, there are no uninterested spectators. They all wholeheartedly worship their God. What a day that will be. So innumerable angels loudly declare Christ's worth, but innumerable angels loudly declare Christ's sevenfold worth. You look at the second half of verse 12 we'll see that with one resounding voice, the angels declare the worth of Christ. And so we should certainly examine the content of this worship to inform us what this immeasurable worth of Christ is really like. As you look at this song, you can can make this distinction between what they are praising. The first four attributes that you see in the second half of verse 12 are attributes that Christ inherently possesses that we cannot add to. In the second sorry, the last three are what Christ deserves from our worship. And I would would wish we could spend more time here. This was great. I listened to two or three messages just on this half of a verse. And I wish we could spend more time here, but we need to keep moving. And so this is what we'll see. The first four attributes, Christ possesses them. Power. This brings out the sense of this omnipotence, Christ's ability. It is all-encompassing. And you'll find the fourth one seems very similar to power. It is strength. And this isn't talking about, this this isn't repetition. It's not just saying Christ has power. He has strength. No, this is Christ's active power. It's not his ability. It's not his supply. It's his implementation of force. Christ has this and he is worthy to have it. Riches. This carries the idea of spiritual wealth. This all-surpassing wealth in every realm that only an all-sufficient God could possess. Paul says in Ephesians 3.8 that there are unsearchable riches in Christ. And then we see wisdom. This designates Christ's ability to control history, that everything that is happening is going to accomplish His will. He sets limits and goals to execute His own perfect will. 
Christ has these first four traits. So let's look at the last three. These responses that Christ reserves because he is worthy. This is the heartfelt response of the angels. This new song with thunderous praise. We see honor. Honor is Christ's rightful possession. And it's this beautiful picture of a precious stone. You give it a place of prominence. A king could have an entire storehouse of riches, but there is this one special treasure that has a place of preeminence. Based on his sacrificial death and his work of redemption, he gets the honor. He is worthy of this honor. Then glory. This takes the idea of honor and it elevates it even further. The lofty majesty of God, shining splendor, his intrinsic state, But all of creation is to ascribe glory to Christ as they do to the Father. It involves giving Christ a proper weight that he deserves. To value something properly, you weigh the worth. And as you weigh the worth of Christ, you begin to realize you cannot ever give him the glory that he truly deserves. He's worthy of honor and glory. And then we see blessing. This idea of speaking well of someone. Because of all that Christ has done for you, he is worthy to evoke a response of gratitude. A response of praise. And one writer said it this way, Christ's work creates in the creature a willingness, unaccompanied by coercion, to return blessing for blessing conferred. Or in other words, Because of what Christ has done for me, out of my own free will, without being forced to do so, I offer Christ a blessing because he has blessed me. Or you could read what Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Christ is worthy of all these things. He has them in abundance already, but we are to ascribe them to him more and more. So the angels loudly proclaim the worth of Christ with this one unified voice. On October 8th, 1988, two college football teams squared off in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The Auburn Tigers were 4-0. They were the favorites to become the national champions. And they were playing LSU, these batting 500 underdogs here. They met in front of 80,000 fans. And after a first half that was dominated by defense, it was a whopping score of three to nothing. Love a good game of defense. (laughs) And then the third quarter was even more exciting because it was still three to nothing at the end of that. But we get to the fourth quarter and finally we see some more scoring. Auburn kicks a field goal and now it's six to nothing. And the way their defense is playing, you say, oh, surely they're going to go ahead and win. But with two minutes left to go, LSU takes the field. And Tommy Hodson leads his own team all the way down the field on a charge until he gets to the 11-yard line. And at the 11-yard line, it is fourth down. It is their last chance, their last play. And Tommy Hodson takes the snap. He drops back to pass, and he sees his receiver Wide open in the end zone. He throws to Eddie Fuller, who catches it. And you can imagine the response. 
on their own home field. 80,000 people leap to their feet, erupting and cheering, and the, the stadium was said to be so loud you couldn't even hear yourself think. Now she went on to kick the extra point, and they won the game 7-6. to six. And you think, yeah, awesome into the story, but that's not actually the end of the story. Tommy Hodson isn't the main character here. It's actually a man named Don Stevenson. He was a member of the science faculty at LSU. The next morning, he and his student assistant, they walk into the seismology facility, which is almost a half kilometer from the football field. And what do they find on the seismograph? They find some activity at the very moment that that touchdown was scored. The crowd had erupted so loudly that they had actually caused an earthquake. And so from then on, that game was dubbed the earthquake game. And in Revelation 5, these angels, they aren't celebrating a measly touchdown with this oddly shaped ball on a strangely painted field. No, they are celebrating with thunderous praise the supreme worth of the Lamb. So what should your praise to God look like? Simply put, sing loudly and with joy. This means if you are louder while cheering for your team on Saturday night than you are while singing to your God Sunday morning, then something is wrong. If you sing happy birthday for your child more enthusiastically than you sing praises to your God, then something is wrong. If the whole foyer can hear you laughing at a friend's story after the service, but the pew in front of you couldn't hear you singing the majesty of your God, then something is wrong. Your God deserves thunderous worship. And you use a phrase up here that if I said it in South Carolina, everyone would be scratching their heads, but I can say it here. Of your worship, when you walk in here with one voice to sing with other Christians the supreme worthiness of Christ, just give her. The angels respond to the worth of Christ with thunderous praise. And if you don't respond the same way, then you need to deepen your worship. So not only do the elders and the creatures exalt Christ's supreme worth, throwing every bit of their being into this worship, and not only do the angels join in in this song with thunderous praise, but the rest of creation, verses 13 and 14, the rest of the creation joins in as well to declare the supreme worth of Christ. This is what we find. All creation exalts Christ's worth by declaring his supremacy. So you must deepen your worship. And really, it's, it's as if John is saying, hey, there's no excuse. No stone will be left unturned in the worship of the Lamb. Anything that has life can and must worship Christ for all of his worth. And so this is what you see in the beginning of verse 13. Let me just read it. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying. John leaves no room for exception here. The beings of heaven, the living things on earth, the sea creatures and the animals that live underground will worship, the four living creatures, the elders, the angels, the animals, all praising Christ's worth together. And I wonder what this worship will sound like. I find it hard to imagine what the worship of heavenly beings sounds like. So when I go to think that animals will worship as well, I, I end up scratching my head. 
And looking at some people's pets, I, I can see why you would be left astounded, saying that there's no way these things will worship. But this is something more than chaotic, disorganized worship. It is more than the mere exciting braying of donkeys, the, the trumpeting blows of an elephant. No, this is rich, intelligent worship of the king of the universe, Christ himself. And so you might think, surely there's no way an animal can actually worship in this intelligent way. But when you look at Christ's words in Luke 19, when he says that if his disciples stop praising him, and I tell you, if they should hold their peace, the stones would cry out immediately. If even the rocks can worship Christ, then all of creation surely can as well. So what exactly do they do as they worship? Look at the second half of verse 13. Creation affirms Christ as equal with the Father. This is what they say. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. This is the climax of this worship scene. It has taken two chapters to develop. Heaven is not worshiping the Father alone. Creation is not worshiping the Son alone. No, they are worshiping the two as co-equal. Their glory is joined together, united in this beautiful doxology. And not one single creature is omitted from this brief yet powerful worship. All the words here that are used to describe the Father are also used to describe the Son. They're co-equal, inseparable. The four attributes that are here in verse 13 have also been used in verse 12 apart from one. You might see a word here, uh, power. And it might look the same as some other words that you've seen in verse 12, but it's slightly different. It is this active power on display before the whole world for everyone to see. God the Father and Jesus Christ deserving this endless blessing and honor and glory and strength. And this exaltation is, is not even temporary. It endlessly continues throughout all of eternity. So consider the supreme worth of Christ who is co-equal with the Father. You get to that point and you almost have to take a deep breath. Finally, we have a chance to do that. All of this worship, and it starts to get a little bit overwhelming. These songs of exuberant worship seem so over the top. and it, we, we should be speechless. In fact, on Tuesday afternoon, I was, I was sitting in the teller's room in my chair, and if you had walked by at 4 o'clock, you would have seen me staring blankly at the wall in front of my notes. And 15 minutes later, if you had walked by the other way, I would have been in the exact same position. Overwhelmed by the astonishing level of adoration. Overwhelmed by the magnitude of the worship that celebrates Christ's act of redemption and work in those whom he redeemed. Overwhelmed by the wealth of his glory. By his death, his power, his riches, wisdom, strength, honor, and blessing. Overwhelmed by the fact that he is equal with the Father. Simply put speechless and if this extreme worshipful worshipful response of the heavenly host and the rest of creation with them if that does not overwhelm you then you haven't fully grasped this text 
You don't understand the magnitude of Christ's worth, what he has accomplished for your sake. Being overwhelmed by Christ's worth is the only appropriate response. You might ask, how can Christ be worthy of all of this? Isn't this a little bit over the top? Didn't someone exaggerate? Didn't someone cross the line? Wasn't one of the songs maybe just a little bit too long? Well, that's why we have one verse left. We get to verse 14 and notice the response of the beast. They say, Amen. All of this worship, all of it, as extravagant as it seems, is completely justified. It is right. It is true. It is deserved. Amen. Then in conjunction with this saying, it's true. It's right. It's deserved. The elders once again throw themselves at the feet of Christ falling on their faces in humble adoration. So what on earth can we do to respond correctly to this text? Based on the all-encompassing, all-surpassing, supreme worth of Christ, what do we do? Well, I would say sit in stunned silence and marvel at the worth of Christ. When you go home, Find a quiet place and read over this passage one more time. Don't doubt it. Don't question it. Don't take away from it. Don't add to it. But sit there in silence and let your soul say, Amen. There is nothing we can add to this text that makes Christ more glorious. And there's nothing that we should take away. He is worthy of it all. It is perfectly balanced, perfectly deserved, perfectly said. So content your soul tonight by simply responding with an affirmation of its truth. When you can sit in silence, considering the worth of Christ, then you can say that you have deepened your worship. All of creation exalts Christ's worth. The elders throw every piece of their being into this worship. The angels sing with thunderous praise. And then all the rest of creation, without exemption, joins. That Christ is equal with the Father. It is right and it is deserved. This text demands that you must dig out. You must deepen your shallow worship. So tonight, contemplate the worth of Christ and ask God to search your heart and show you anything that you hold to be more worthwhile than Christ himself. There are changes likely that need to be made. Too much time spent on entertainment or even on planning for the future. Both things worthy, worthwhile, things that God has given us, but things that when given too much weight distract from the worth of Christ. Consider the depth of your worship and respond with obedience. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this text. We thank you that you give us a glimpse of the worth of Christ. Would you help us to digest it, to understand it, to grow, to love him more because of all that he has done for us? Would you help us to value him properly, to give him the right weight, 
in our lives. Would you help us this week to love you and to deepen our worship? In Jesus' name, amen.